according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 this morning. We're going to wrap up the last details on uh, the escape to Egypt and the murder of the babies, as well as item number 14 in the Harmony of the Gospel outline from Egypt to Nazareth. I also hope to, at the conclusion, or really for the bulk of our time today, be able to get to point six in our outline, which is also, by the way, a handout we gave out two weeks ago. <laughs> I know you've done nothing for two weeks except hold on to that piece of paper and anticipate getting to it, but if you uh, did not do not have it with you this morning, I do have some extras to hand out. All right, before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that we are filled with the Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, once again, it is our privilege to be here this morning, and we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for the freedom that we enjoy in this country to assemble together and receive instruction. We ask, Father, for this time that distractions will be set aside, that you would guide us in the truth. And, uh, Father, in particular, as we handle some areas of, uh, of, of theology and hermeneutics, we pray, Father, that uh, what can very quickly just become a very dry academic subject Father, that you would not allow it to do so, that you would uh, allow for the God-breathed and inspired Word of God to be alive and powerful and and uh, communicate to us what we need to learn. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, in the uh, course of this, we have spent last week really in point four. I'll just very quickly run through these for your uh, memory. Point one. After the, uh, where is my point one? Okay. Try it again. Point one. After the Magi had obeyed their dream instructions, Joseph also received a dream. We spent the uh, focus a couple weeks ago dealing with four imperatives and the explanation that was then offered in verse 13. Uh, the four imperatives, get up, take, flee, and remain. The explanation uh, coming with the explanatory clause for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. We commented upon the fact that God is not required to give explanations and no human being is is uh, entitled to receive an explanation. Um, God does not have to explain himself in anything that he does. He is sovereign over his creation and he is sovereign towards his creatures. But in the places where he chooses to offer an explanation, we recognize that it is under the circumstances of maturity when a believer has the maturity to understand God's thinking behind an activity. And uh, such as in the case with Abraham in Genesis 18 and such as is in the case here, it really is really telling with respect to Joseph's maturity that God is treating him as a fellow worker, as we are called God's fellow workers. And that Joseph has the maturity to not simply obey mindlessly a command that's given, but to uh, be entrusted with God's thinking and purpose and explanation behind the commands that are given. We noted under point two that Joseph's obedience was immediate. That he did not wait until morning, but he left while it was still night. 
when we understand the will of God and when we understand the urgency, then any delay becomes simply uh, sin, it becomes a rebellion, an aspect of negative volition. Uh, if you want a good illustration of that, I think you find it with Laban and the, all the hindrances of, of Abraham's servants, uh, servant to not depart immediately and take Rebekah back to be Isaac's wife. I think you see the delay in that chapter as rather an, an indication of, if not a full-fledged negative volition, uh, at least what we would refer to it as passive positive volition. And if I've never explained that spectrum to you in the past, then perhaps at an appropriate time here coming up, we will show you that spectrum from active positive volition to passive positive volition, which very quickly slides into passive negative volition, which is down that slippery slope then to the active negative volition and the process that happens there. Point three in the outline, Joseph and his family remained in Egypt until the death of Herod. Until the death of Herod. And that's easy for us to read in a one sentence verse or one in the first sentence of this verse. He remained there until the death of Herod. That's easy for us to read 2,000 years later. But when Mary and Joseph were going down there, they didn't know how long it was going to be. Just like when we encounter our testing in life, we don't know how long the test is going to be. We're facing the test day by day, one day at a time, and we don't know. Is this a, a one-day test, a three-day test, a week, a month, a year? Is this a test for the next 20 years? We don't know. The idea is, though, that we stay faithful. We, we endure the test one day at a time. We wake up and rejoice that the Lord has given us one more day. And we submit to his uh, wisdom in not only giving the test in the first place, but that the, the, the duration of the test is in keeping with his perfect will. It's not too long. It's not too short. It is precisely as long as it needs to be for the accomplishment of his purpose. Uh, we estimate that it was somewhat less than a year, six months to a year, um, we we can only speculate based upon uh, rough ideas of a timeline, and given the fact that we do know historically the death of Herod occurred in 4 B.C., that does help set the limit somewhat. Under point four, we spent our time last week examining the massacre of the babies and in viewing the fulfillment of Scripture in this regard. And so let's get right back to it here this hour. We have seen so far, this, was, this now makes the third scripture fulfillment in Matthew chapter 2. The first of which we observed in verses 5 and 6, where, the, where Herod was asking where the birthplace of the Messiah was going to be. And they said, well, in fulfillment of Micah chapter 5, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. And uh, they cite Micah chapter 5 in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6 is a direct quotation. And so we have scripture fulfillment there in that instance. That's the first of four times that we have scripture fulfillment here in Matthew chapter 2. The second time that we saw was in verse 15, where uh, they flee to Egypt and uh, we are given the, we're given God's commentary on Hosea where it says, This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. So the Holy Spirit, in composing the Gospel of Matthew, has declared that this incident is a fulfillment of Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. And it even cites and quotes from Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. This is the second of the areas. Now as we were studying it, we observed that this fulfillment would not otherwise have been observed as such. And we will get to that issue at the end of this hour and, and probably spend considerable time on it. But just notice the first one is in verse 6. The second one is in verse 15. This now is the third one. 
the massacre of the babies, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we are told that, that, uh, that this was fulfillment of what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. And last week we went back to Jeremiah. We saw the context for that prophecy, the context for that message being in the captivity, being in the destruction of Jerusalem by the uh, Babylonians, being the captivity of the children of Jerusalem, such as Daniel and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, such as uh, Ezekiel, five years after that event, and all of the, the different captivities that occurred where the mothers were on hand to weep for their children refusing to be comforted because they were no more. Now, uh, today we're going to see the fourth of these. So the first one was verse 6, the second one verse 15, the third one verse 18, all citations from the Old Testament. The fourth one coming in verse 23, where he shall be called a Nazarene. And we will focus on that one here this hour and then kind of go back and give a recap of the whole chapter and give a recap on all four uh, scripture citations. He shall be called a Nazarene. All right. Under point five now. Joseph's obedience in returning to Israel. Matthew chapter two, verses 19 through 23. Joseph's obedience in returning to Israel. Matthew 19 verses, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 2, verses 19 through 23. And I had wanted to get my software up and running, so let me do that while we're looking at it. Verse 19, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But <clears throat> here's a snag. When he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. So there's a snag. Here's Joseph obeying the word of God in faith. And while he's on his way in, in obedience, a snag pops up. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for regions for the regions of Galilee. And came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what had been, what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. All right. All right. Joseph's obedience in returning to Israel is point five in the outline. All right. Now, this was, again, a part of God's test. This was, again, a part of God's timetable and his plan 
that uh, Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus were not going to become Egyptians. They aren't going to live in Egypt for the rest of his life and ministry. But it was for the short term. It was for the purposes of not only thwarting the, the uh, human participants, that is Herod and the human participants, but in the angelic conflict as well, keeping the fallen forces of uh, Satan, the fallen angels that are motivating this murder, motivating the attack upon the seed of the woman, to be keeping the fallen angels off their guard as well. Remember, fallen angels are not omniscient beings. Fallen angels are not omnipotent beings. They are not omnipresent beings. They can only be at one place at one time. Yes, they can move from place to place. Yes, they can communicate with one another. Yes, they can um, network, as we would say, and get information back and forth very quickly. But they are not omniscient, and God very frequently keeps them in the dark. And we can be very thankful for that. And uh, he is keeping the fallen angels in the dark by virtue of bringing uh, uh, Joseph, Mary, and the baby into Egypt. Keep in mind, as we studied, we took the time two weeks ago to go to Hosea chapter 11, and we recognized that there is no clue in Hosea or anywhere else in the Old Testament that out of Egypt I have called my son was prophetic. All the indications were that Hosea, in Hosea chapter 11, that out of Egypt I called my son, was historical. That the prophet Hosea was looking back. That God was surveying the history of his dealings with Israel. And that from, from Israel's very birth and from the, the establishment of the nation of Israel and all of the rest of that, God has been faithful and Israel has been faithless. And we look at Hosea 11 and it appears to be a survey. It appears to be historically looking backwards. And there's not a shred of clue in that passage that it is a messianic prophecy looking forward all right god's good pleasure it is the glory of god to conceal a matter the secret things of the lord belong to the lord let's keep those things in mind and he keeps things reserved for his purposes in his wisdom recognizing that the 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 need to keep the christ and his location secret would be necessary because the Christ has to obviously grow and has to obviously minister and has to go to the cross volitionally of his own free will. And he does so. But the, the need to keep it quiet and to keep his location secret and to keep these things uh, uh, unknown to the fallen angels is obviously very important. So after having put all the angelic realm on notice that the Christ has been born, the Father is then pleased to keep the angelic realm off their guard to uh, leave them wondering for a period of 30 years or so, uh, were they successful with the Bethlehem massacre? And so we see the things that happen here. I don't think it's coincidental at all that um, his uh, being hidden away in Egypt and then being uh, really secreted into Nazareth, Nazareth being an out-of-the-way location in, uh, in uh, Galilee, I don't find that coincidental at all. So that when we look down and we glance down into chapter 3 and uh, his public appearing to Israel and with the baptism and the declaration and the heavens opened uh, in verse 17, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Uh, immediately the Satan and the fallen angels know that uh, they're in trouble. <laughs> they know that their attempt to massacre the baby 30 years ago didn't work. 
And they know that it's not going to be so easy this time because here is an adult son. Here is a son equipped with the word of God. And it's not accidental that right after chapter 3 and verse 17, we have chapter 4 and verse 1. That Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. With, with Satan and the fallen angels put on full notice that they failed with the Bethlehem massacre, here is the son of David, the son of God, and uh, angelic conflict ensues immediately in the very next verse. So, we will handle those items here shortly. But for this morning, subpoint A, Herod's death is gruesomely recorded by Josephus. Herod's death is gruesomely recorded by Josephus. Josephus, Antiquities of the Jews. Book 17, chapter 6, section 5. Likewise, book 17, chapter 8. Beginning with section 1. Herod's death is gruesomely recorded by Josephus. As I mentioned last week and probably the week before, uh, Herod is one of the more significantly um, attested characters of the ancient world. Herod was a remarkable person in all of his evil and all of his career and all of his achievements and the way he always seemed to bounce back from anything <laughs> and the way he eliminated his opponents, even if they were family, didn't matter. <laughs> Herod's an amazing study, just historically speaking. Now, he's a, a pagan, a heathen, he's in hell today. But if you have an interest in history in, in, of any sort, uh, Herod is an, is an interesting character. Now, Matthew is rather... Um, uh, soft, uh, in verse 19, Herod died. <laughs> all right, that's all we have. I thought I would read a little bit of Josephus for you this morning. Reading from uh, his antiquities here. This is from chapter 6, I'm sorry, book 18. Book 17, chapter 6, section 5. But now Herod's distemper greatly increased upon him after a severe manner, and this by God's judgment upon him for his sins. Recognize that's not scripture, but that's Josephus' opinion and commentary that, that, uh, Joseph's, that uh, Herod's death was divine judgment for his life of wickedness. Remember, Josephus himself is a Jew, but he's a rather, and a Pharisee, but um, he is rather politically connected and he is writing to a Roman audience. For a fire glowed in him slowly, which did not so much appear to be the touch outwardly as it augmented his pains inwardly. For it brought upon him a vehement appetite to eating, which he could not avoid to supply with one sort of food or another. His entrails were also exulcerated, and the chief violence of his pain lay on his colon. An aqueous and transparent liquor, or liqueur, also settled itself about his feet, and a like manner affected him at the bottom of his belly." Nay, farther, his privy member was putrefied and produced worms, and when he sat upright, he had a difficulty of breathing, which was very loathsome on account of the stench of his breath and the quickness of his returns. He had also convulsions in all parts of his body, which increased his strength to an insufferable degree. It was said by those who pretended to divine and who were endowed with wisdom to foretell such things that God inflicted this punishment on the king on account of his great impiety. Yet was he still in hopes of recovering, though his afflictions seemed greater than anyone could bear. 
He also sent for physicians and did not refuse to follow what they prescribed for his assistance and went beyond the river Jordan and bathed himself in warm baths that were at uh, Colorado, which besides were, uh, their other general virtues were also fit to drink, which water uh, runs into the lake called Asphaletus. And when the physicians once thought it fit to have him bathed in a vessel full of oil, it was supposed that he was just dying. But upon the lamentable cries of his domestics, he revived. And having no longer the least hopes of recovering, he gave order that every soldier should be paid 50 drachma. He also gave a great deal to their commanders and to his friends and came again to Jericho, where he grew so choleric that he brought him to do all things like a madman. And though he were near his death, he contrived the following wicked designs. And it goes on to describe kind of the last will and testament and all of his you know, the last chance that he had to do great uh, evil things. He commanded that all the principal men of the entire Jewish nation, where, wheresoever they lived, should be called to him. Accordingly, there were a great number that came because the whole nation was called and all men heard this call and the death and death was the penalty of such as should despise the epistles that were sent to call them. And now the king was in a wild rage against them all, the innocent as well as those that had afforded him ground for accusation. And when they were come, he ordered them all to be shut up in the hippodrome and sent for his sister Salome and her husband Alexis and spoke thus to them. I shall die in a little time, so great are my pains, which death ought to be cheerfully borne and to be welcomed by all men. But what principally troubles me is this, that I shall die without being lamented. <laughs> He's brokenhearted that he's not going to have a eulogy at his funeral. <laughs> um, <laughs> that I shall die without being lamented and without such mourning as men usually expect at a king's death. For that he was not unacquainted with the temper of the Jews, that his death would be a thing very desirable and exceedingly acceptable to them, because during his lifetime they were ready to revolt from him and to abuse the donations that he had dedicated to God that it therefore was their business to resolve to afford him some alleviation of his great sorrows on this occasion, for that if they do not refuse him their consent in what he desires, he shall have a great mourning at his funeral, and such as never had any king had before him, for then the whole nation would mourn from their very soul, which otherwise would be done in sport and mockery. He desired, uh, he de he desired therefore, that as soon as they see that he had given up the ghost, they shall place uh, soldiers around the hippodrome while they do not know that he is dead, and they shall, uh, that they shall not declare his death to the multitude until uh, this is done, but that they shall give orders to have those that are in custody shot with their darts, that they slaughter of them all uh, will cause uh, that he should not miss to rejoice on double account, that he is dying, that uh, they will make him secure, uh, that his will shall be executed in what he charges them to do, and that he shall have the honor of a memorable, me memorable mourning at his funeral. So, it goes on, but we'll stop it there. The description of insanity, really the hopeless description of what this lost world is all about. And any unbelievers that you know that are fearing their death or fearing their upcoming demise, it's quite remarkable the difference between the godly and the ungodly at physical death. And uh, as that time approaches, those who have hope and confidence and those who don't and those that are clinging at whatever they're clinging to in uh, the variety of their circumstances. All right. So that's out of Josephus. Point B. Another dream instructs Joseph to get up. All right. Now, he had a dream that sent him to Egypt and he has been enduring day by day, simply waiting 
fulfilling what we call trust and obey. Just waiting and waiting and waiting. Not knowing when it's going to be, but knowing that it would. Another dream instructs Joseph to get up, take, and go. So, Joseph got up, took, and went. Another dream instructs Joseph to get up, take, and go. So, Joseph got up, took, and went. Much as in the circumstances of his departure, where he was told to get up, take, flee, and remain, where Joseph got up, took, fled, and remained, likewise we find obedience in his arrival to get up, take, and go. He got up, he took, and he went. That is, he came into. Vocabulary is almost parallel in the instructions and in the obedience. We have... Oh, let me get rid of that. Let me go to my underline. He's told to get up, a gero, so he got up, a gero. He was told to take, paralambano, so he took, paralambano. He was told to go, poor you am I, so he went. That's not poor you am I, that's Isercomai. Just as in the incident where he fled, we saw one significant vocabulary difference. Likewise, in his return, we find one significant vocabulary difference. He was told to go, poor you am I, and so he went, Ice Erkamai. As we contrast the uh, imperatives from verse 20 with the uh, activity or the obedience in verse 21. The imperatives, get up, take, and go, in verse 20. The obedience of what he does in verse 21. He got up, he took, and he came into the land of Israel. And the transition from the imperative of poor you am I to the indicative of eis erkamai Just as we saw with the obedience when he fled, we find the obedience when he arrives. He is obeying, but he is obeying from the standpoint of his own volition. He's obeying from the standpoint of his own understanding that he is coming back into, which is the impact of ice erkamai, ice meaning into, to come into. He is coming back into the land grant. He is coming back into the land of the Abrahamic covenant, coming back into the land of promise, coming back into God's geographic will for the raising of the Christ and the fulfillment of all the messianic promises and expectations. All right? Just as he had a frame of reference to understand. And when we were contrasting this, we were contrasting the order to flee. And so he departed. All right, he was told to flee, and so he left. That's the contrast in verses 13 and verse 14. He was told to fugo, and so he left in verse 14. That he, anakoreo, uh, that he sought refuge. He knew in his own priesthood, in his own, or not priesthood, but in his own Christian walk, in his own faith, that this departure was simply a, a, a temporary Retreat. It was a temporary refuge. And so when he was told to go, what was he doing? He was entering back into the land of promise. So another dream instructs Joseph to get up, take, and go. 
So Joseph got up, took, and went. Entered into the land of promise. The Greek vocabulary there being ice erkamai, number 1525. Point C. An unexpected turn of events sparked fear. But Joseph's faith rest took his family where they needed to be. An unexpected turn of events sparked fear. But Joseph's faith rest took his family to where they needed to be. Matthew 2, verses 22 and 23. Again, some point C, an unexpected turn of events sparked fear, but Joseph's faith rest took his family where they needed to be. You know, you know the will of God and you step forward by faith and you obey the word of God. But then a circumstance pops up and your faith looks at it and you start to wonder. <laughs> Oops, wasn't expecting that. And someone weak in faith might start to question what they're doing and say, oh, maybe God didn't know about that. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. And then a, a believer starts to question, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I made a bad decision because I wasn't expecting this to happen. See, the, the tools of doubt and fear are the tools that the devil loves to use to cause believers to question what they're doing. See, and how productive is that? You're walking by faith. You're being led by the Word of God. You're making a decision in faith according to the Word of God. You have submitted your will to His will, not mine but thine be done. You've prayerfully made this decision and you've gone forward on the basis of faith. Alright? So, get over it. <laughs> get past it. The decision you've made is a decision you've made. We're not in the business of looking back. We're in the business of forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Now, the decision you made, you made on the basis of faith at the time. At the time. See? And God's not going to give you a fish if you've asked for a snake. He's not going to give you a stone if you've asked for a, a loaf of bread. So in terms of decision-making in the will of God, you've made it, and now you're down the road. So don't allow these doubts and these fears then to creep in. Now, here's the unexpected turn of events. He gets up, he takes, and he, and he comes back in the land of Israel. But then, in verse 22, he heard that Archelaus is reigning over Judea. And Archelaus is bad news. And so here's the, here's the temptation. Here's the test. Oh, well, maybe this was a bad idea. No, it's not a bad idea. God told you to get out of Egypt. He told you to come back to Israel. It's not a bad idea. Oh, well, maybe God didn't know that Archelaus was taken over from here. Of course God knew that. Don't, don't get confused in your fear and in your sin. Okay? Now, it is called a fear. It is called a fear. It says he was afraid to go there. All right. Does that mean that he sinned? Does that mean that this is a sinful fear? Well, what did he do with his fear? Then after being warned by God in a dream, all the indications are that he took that fear to the Lord. He made that a matter of prayer. 
And he's getting additional instructions, additional guidance for where to go. After being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee. See, now you and I don't get to pick our dreams every night. I used to think they'd be kind of fun. When I was growing up, I used to think, I'm going to sleep tonight, and think, you know, tonight I want to have a, tonight I want to have a, a, a you know, a, an, an adventure dream. I want to have swords and dragons, and I want to have an adventure dream tonight. Or I go to bed, I say, well, tonight I want to have a, a, a spy dream. I want to, you know, be a spy and shoot guns and stuff. Or tonight I want to have a, you know, fill in the blank. No, we don't get to fill in a prayer, a, a, a dream request when we go to sleep each night. All right? God's not in the business of entertaining us in our in our dreams night by night by night and putting in, you know, dream requests like a video rental or something. All right? But now, prophets are another matter altogether. And the method of divine communication that was employed with prophets in the Old Testament, and I'm not saying that Joseph himself was a prophet, but I'm saying that the communication mechanism is similar to what the prophets employed, um, in that... The fear issue that he had is being answered in this dream. The communication that Joseph has with the Lord, who not only delivers instructions, but also delivers reasoning and thinking behind those instructions. God is sharing his purpose, his desire. And so when we see the fear in verse 22, immediately answered by a dream in verse 22, I think it's telling I think it's indicative of Joseph's maturity and Joseph's prayer life and the means by which he would take a matter to the Lord, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request known. And so Joseph had this fear. He said, man, here's Archelaus. What am I going to do about this? He says, I'm here, Lord. You told me to come here and here I am. What do I do about this? And he gets the answer that very night in a dream. Well, he says, don't settle in Bethlehem. Go up there to Galilee. Go to the region of Nazareth in Galilee. That's not under Archelaus's control. See, after the death of Herod, the territory that Herod previously had reigned over was divided up among uh, different sons and different groups. So, going to Galilee gets them out of Archelaus's dominion. So, we have fear, and yet we have the provision that's made And that's what we have in the church age in the realm of prayer to be anxious for nothing, but in everything that is in everything that you would otherwise be anxious for by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known. And you thank God ahead of time because it's with thanksgiving that you're letting the request be made known. You know, the answer is coming. He's not going to give you a snake. He's not going to give you a stone. You know, he's going to provide for the uh, for the circumstance. Note, for the third time, this event fulfilled what may otherwise not be understood to be a messianic prophecy. After being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. So for the third time, 
Settling in Nazareth is a fulfillment of prophecy. But it is a prophecy that would otherwise be unknown. And as a matter of fact, it is scripture that is otherwise unknown. And I'll explain what I mean by that here in a moment. Note for the third time, this event fulfilled what may otherwise not be understood to be a messianic prophecy. He shall be called a Nazarene. So just like in verse 6, verse 15, verse 18, here's verse 23, we're recognizing that we have a fulfillment. Old Testament citation or quotation and Old Testament fulfillment in the New Testament record. Now with verse 6, we're able to cite Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. With verse 15, we're able to cite Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. With verse 18, we're able to cite Jeremiah. And it's um, Jeremiah 31 and verse 15. With verse 23, we want to go back to the Old Testament and find a verse that says, He shall be called a Nazarene. Good luck. (laughs) All right. You can read Genesis through Malachi, verse by verse by verse, and you will never find it. There is no verse that says, he shall be called a Nazarene. Which is why we're taking care in this chapter to spotlight the four different ways that scriptures are quoted and cited in the New Testament. Now, a couple of different ways you can take this. The similarity of word sounds leads most commentators to make the following connection with Isaiah. You'll notice we have some, some general terms that are written. If you peek back up to verse 5, they said this is what has been written by the prophet. And they quoted it. They didn't say the prophet Micah. They just said by the prophet. And they cited Micah 5.2. In verse uh, 15, what had been spoken by the prophet, didn't tell us it was the prophet Hosea, just said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son, and it cited Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. In verse 17, the prophet is named. What had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And then he quotes from the verse I gave you, Jeremiah 31:15. Now here in verse 23, it's not the prophet singular, but the prophet's plural. Through the prophets, plural. Does that mean more than one prophet had this quote? Well, if more than one prophet had this quote, maybe Hosea had it, maybe Isaiah had it, maybe Jeremiah had it. If more than one prophet had this quote, then we would expect to have it written down somewhere in one of those Old Testament books. When the fact of the matter is that we don't. Okay, And so we can take prophets generally... And we can speak of what the prophetic message was generally. This is what the prophets said. Okay? Well, who were the prophets? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, uh, Hosea through Malachi. All right? When you take the 12 minor prophets. What, What was their message about the Christ? So, we'll break that down for you in a moment. However, let me give you what 
many commentators give you in the similarity of word sounds. Subpoint one, Nazarene. He should be called a Nazarene. In the Greek, the Nazarios. I'm sorry, Nazorios. N-A-Z-O, long O, Omega. N-A-Z-O-R-A-I-O-S. The first O is the Omega. The second O is the Omicron. So it's Nazorios. Nazorios isn't really a Greek word. It's just a, <laughs> a term that applies to a, an inhabitant of Nazarat, which is likewise not even a Greek word, but a translation of a Hebrew word. Of this, the name, the proper name of this Jewish village. He shall be called a Nazarias, that is an inhabitant of Nazarat. Strong's numbers on those 3480 for Nazarias and 3478 for Nazarat. Now the sounds of Nazaras, of Nazarat, or Nazarias, are similar to subpoint two, a Nitzer. N-E-T-S-E-R, a Nitzer, which is a branch, number 5342. And we do have branch prophecies that pertain to the coming Messiah, specifically Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1, and elsewhere. We have branch references beyond Isaiah. I think there's branch references in Zechariah. There's branch references beyond chapter 11 and verse in Isaiah. And so, references to the Hebrew Nazar could indeed be accurately spoken of as spoken through the prophets who addressed the branch. That he shall be called a Nazarene, given the similarity of sounds between the Greek Nazarene and the Hebrew Nazar. Branch, Isaiah 11 and verse 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch, a natzer, from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked." Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat. All right, you get the idea. This is second advent in its application. This is millennial in its fulfillment. But he is called a shoot and he is called a branch. And the uh, Nitzer, the branch there, is quite similar to the Greek Nazarios, at least in their sounding. And uh, so most commentators or many commentators find the uh, fulfillment being answered in that manner i think there is another way to answer that with respect to the um the shame of the coming christ all right and so we will handle that under point six in any event just like with out of egypt i called my son there's no clue in Hosea, that that's a messianic prophecy pointing ahead. 
It's not until Matthew is written. It's not until Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt with a baby and then return that the Holy Spirit communicates, oh, by the way, this is now fulfilling what Hosea was prophetically speaking of. And then Joseph and Mary can say, oh, that was a prophecy? <laughs> Didn't know that. Oh, how about that? Glad it worked out that way. Okay. Similarly, when the babies were massacred in Bethlehem, the Holy Spirit could say this is fulfillment of what Jeremiah was speaking about with Rachel weeping for her children. At which time the inhabitants of Bethlehem and others could say, oh, that was a prophecy? I didn't realize that. That's being fulfilled. Okay. Similarly, he shall be called a Nazarene. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that the Christ will be called a Nazarene. But it does say that a shoot will spring forth from Jesse and a branch will spring forth from Jesse, that a, a natzer, a branch, would indeed arise. And, of course, nobody in Jeremiah's day knew that there would be a village called Nazareth in 700 years, 600 years. Okay, But here it is. Under point six, the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament in four different ways. And this chapter, Matthew chapter 2, illustrates all four methods. Now, do you have the handout? Nobody has the handout. Some people do. Here we go. I've got, got a handful left. Uh-huh. The New Testament authors quote the Old Testament in four different ways. Who else needs one? Anybody? Okay. Ethel needs one. Now, I'm going to say something here. <laughs> if uh, in the secular world, if uh, a newspaper reporter is quoting uh, somebody, a politician or a public official or somebody, citizen, does the, does the newspaper reporter always get that quotation right? <laughs> Sometimes they intentionally get that quotation wrong. Sometimes they intentionally misquote or they take out a context or they, they leave things out. All right. Similarly, secular authors. I may be writing a book and I may quote uh, uh, an author from somewhere else and I may misquote him because I'm fallible, subject to error. One thing we want to keep in mind in dealing with the New Testament is we're still talking about Scripture. We are talking about Scripture which is being written under the, the, the verbal plenary inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. And so New Testament authors cannot misquote. They cannot misquote. If there is the appearance of a misquote, we need to recognize what's going on. Because the same Holy Spirit that wrote the first quote is the same Holy Spirit that's writing the quotation. Right? Because it was the Holy Spirit who authored Hosea 11.1. 1. Out of Egypt I called my son. And it's the same Holy Spirit that wrote Matthew chapter 2. That quoted Hosea chapter 11. So under verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, God the Holy Spirit is the author of the Word of God. No prophecy is of its own private interpretation. We understand that. Holy men of old spoke as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. Alright, we understand that. Um, as a matter of fact, there is a beyond the material that's on this in this handout here. There is a um, a uh, where am I going to find it? 
in the old Schofield Study Bible, there is a, uh, I don't know where it is, it's in Hebrews chapter 10, in verse 5. When he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And this then being a citation from Psalm 40 and verse 6. All right. And it doesn't precisely follow the exact text of, of Psalm 40 and verse 6. But it expands it and it gives a fuller explanation by the rendering of it here in verse 5. But a body you have prepared for me. And I thought Schofield said it best in the original Schofield Study Bible notes. The rule applicable to all modifications of the form of quotations in the New Testament from Old Testament writings is that the divine author of both Testaments is perfectly free in using an earlier statement to recast the mere literary form of it. The variant form will be found invariably to give the deeper meaning of the earlier statement. See, he has the chance to restate what he had previously said and to give a deeper sense of it such as he does. Hebrews 10 is much deeper than Psalm 40 in what it's being applied to there with respect to Jesus Christ's coming and the body that the Father has prepared for him. In any event, I appreciated that quote from Schofield. Now, with respect to our illustration here. Point six. The New Testament authors quote the Old Testament in four different ways. Matthew 2 illustrates all four methods. This is from Arnold Fruchtenbaum writing in the Schaefer Theological Seminary Journal. And he had, I footnoted the reference there, the July 2000 issue, pages 61 to 63, if you want to read the entire article. Fruchtenbaum himself is quoting David L. Cooper and uh, an article that he wrote in 1958 called Messiah, His Historical Appearance. All right, and these are the four ways that the Old Testament gets quoted. The first is literal prophecy plus literal fulfillment. That's the obvious one. That's the one we're used to. That's the one we're used to where we have a prophet that says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And that one is obviously a prophecy. That one is obviously spoken and it's obviously fulfilled and we're real, we're real uh, simple on those. In this manner, Matthew 2, verses 5 and 6 quotes Micah 5, 2. Micah's prophecy that the Messiah's birthplace would be in Bethlehem of Judah is literal in meaning. The term for a fulfillment of a literal prophecy in, this New Te- in the New Testament is a literal fulfillment. And, and the author here likewise cites Isaiah 7:14, a, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son. Or the uh, crucifixion prophecy of Isaiah 52:13 to 53:12 that we read at the communion service uh, this last Sunday. That the, he would be a silent lamb before its shearers and he would go and be the, the sacrifice on our behalf. Zechariah 9:9. Um, that's the uh, humble writing on a colt that was literally fulfilled when Jesus Christ entered into Jerusalem on Palm Monday. All right. You all thought it was Palm Sunday all this time. In any event. Now, the second, now that's the easy one. That's the easy one because we see the prophecies. As I drew it out last week and the week before, These were the black ones. All the X's that we knew were prophecies. But there are other passages as well that I colored green. These green X's. 
They're in the Old Testament, but we didn't know that they were prophecies until they were fulfilled. And so, the second is literal plus typical. This is the second means in which the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament. Matthew 2.15's quotation of Hosea 11.1 illustrates the original context is not prophetic, but refers to God bringing Israel out of Egypt. When he says, out of Egypt, I, will, I, out of Egypt I have brought my son. He's brought Israel, his national son, out of Egypt. And that's the Exodus. That's Moses bringing Israel out of Egypt. Hosea referred to literal Israel because the following verses speak of Israel quickly slipping into idolatry. And we, we went into that full context two weeks ago. The literal meaning of Hosea's 11.1 context refers to the Exodus. Israel coming out of Egypt. Now, now here's where it's literal plus typical. The, fulfill, the uh, literal meaning was the Exodus. But Israel coming out of Egypt typifies the individual son of God. That is the messianic son of God leaving Egypt. The fulfillment was typical, not prophetic, since Hosea 11.1 was not prophetic. Okay? You understand? It's typical. It's a type. When Israel came out of Egypt, that was a type that painted a picture of what would then, 1,500 years later, be Jesus coming out of Egypt. Okay? The national son coming out of Egypt was the type for the messianic son, the only begotten son coming out of Egypt. That's the fulfillment. And so it was literal plus typical. Okay, The types in Scripture are very important. The, the easiest one to look at is, is Abraham willing to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. That is a father willing to sacrifice his only begotten son. And he's willing to slay that son. And that, that is not a prophetic message there, but it's a type. It's a typical message because it looks forward to God the Father who was willing to sacrifice his son and who actually did sacrifice his son. Now, Abraham's hand was stayed and he didn't have to go through with it, but he was willing to. But that painted a picture. That was a type. A type of God the Father, a type of God the Son. Okay? So typology is, a, is just as valid of a prophetic message as an actual prophetic utterance. And so what we have here is we have literal plus typical. It is a literal scripture, but it has a typical fulfillment. The fulfillment was typical, not prophetic, since Hosea 11.1 was not prophetic. Matthew does not deny, change, or reinterpret the original literal meaning. Not altering what Hosea was dealing with. He's just showing that it was a typical picture pointing ahead to this event. The literal Old Testament event typifies a New Testament event. This is literal plus typical. Often, the book of Hebrews cites Exodus and Leviticus similarly because much of the shadow ritual of the Levitical priesthood was typical, looking, pointing ahead to a future reality, such as we have now. Uh, we recognize that much of the Old Testament, much of the Levitical offerings and furnishings and, and rituals, they all were typical, pointing ahead to Christ. All right? Now, the third message is literal plus application. The fourth kind is summation. Okay? Notice all of these are not destroying the original text. They're all taking the original text literally, but they are 
understanding their fulfillment in different ways, such as the typical manner. Now, here is the application. The third method for a New Testament author quoting the Old Testament is literal plus application. Matthew seven or Matthew two seventeen and eighteen quotes Jeremiah thirty one fifteen in this matter. Jewish young men going into the Babylonian captivity passed the town of Ramah. Rachel, the symbol of Jewish motherhood, was buried near that town. As the young men went, Ramah's Jewish mothers wept for sons they would never see again. This was at the captivity. This was when the Babylonians were sweeping them all away. And Jeremiah's literal meaning pictures the scene as Rachel weeping for her children. The New Testament cannot change or reinterpret the contextual meaning. Rather, a New Testament event having one similarity to an Old Testament event applies it. It applies it. That's why this is literal plus application. The point of similarity is that, once again, Jewish mothers are weeping for sons they will never see again. Applying an Old Testament passage to a New Testament event. Everything else is different. See, there's one item of similarity, so that passage is being applied, but we don't try to draw parallels with everything because you can't. Everything else is different. Jeremiah's event uh, happens in Ramah, north of Jerusalem. But Matthew 2 occurs in Bethlehem, south of Jerusalem. In Matthew, they die. But in Jeremiah, the living sons go into captivity. So this is literal plus application. The original text may be history or prophecy. For example, a prophetic example of that is in Acts chapter 2 where Peter cites Joel chapter 2. Joel didn't talk about tongues. Joel mentioned prophecy. But the one similar event was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter took that one similar event, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and he drew application and he preached the message. His message, though, was dealing with tongues and evangelism. Joel 2 wasn't talking about tongues. Joel 2 was talking about prophecy in millennial kingdom. Dreams, visions, the sun darkened, the moon turned to blood. None of that happened in Acts chapter 2. Joel spoke of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the whole nation in the last days. But Acts chapter 2 speaks about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on people in the upper room. So Acts 2 does not change or reinterpret Joel 2. It's still a valid prophecy. It will still be fulfilled in the millennium. Nor does it deny that there will have a literal fulfillment when the Holy Spirit will be poured out on the nation. It applies only one point of similarity to a New Testament event. It applies a point of similarity to a New Testament event. Then the fourth method that a New Testament author will quote the Old Testament is the method of summation. To sum up. To sum up what the prophets, what they said. If you're going to boil down what the prophet said, what is it going to be? What Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. What did they all say? The summarization, the summation of the prophetic message. Matthew 2.23 illustrates this, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken through the prophets, plural, generalized, that he should be called a Nazarene. No such explicit statement occurs in the Old Testament. The plural prophets points to at least two, yet not even one uses these very words. Unlike the first three categories, summation gives a summary of teaching. 
The plural prophets is a clue. First century Jews despised Nazarenes, a reference to reproach and shame. Remember when, when uh, in John chapter 1, when uh, uh, Nathaniel just mocked and ridiculed and said, how can anything good come out of Nazareth? The, Naz- the people of Nazareth were subject to ridicule and, and shame. The term Nazarene summarizes the prophet's teaching that people would despise and reject the Messiah. And that's a summation of all the prophets and what they spoke of in terms of the coming Christ. For example, Isaiah 53.3. Another example of summation is found in Luke 18.31-33. Using the plural for the prophets again, Jesus stated that the time for climactic fulfillment had come. The Messiah will go to Jerusalem, be turned over to Gentiles, will mock him, treat him shamefully, spit on him, scourge him, kill him, but he will rise again on the third day. Okay? And if you want to read that, that's Luke 18. I'm a little long here this morning, but Luke 18, 31 through 33. But then again, I'm, I'm a legalist, so if, uh, if prayer meeting got long and I didn't exactly start right at 10 o'clock, then, you know, me, I'm just a legalist. I'll, I'll, I'll get my full hour in here one way or the other. I'm joking. I'm joking. Relax. Relax mental attitude. <laughs> I, I value the prayer meetings, and if they go long, we needed the prayer. I don't mind that. All right, Luke 18, 31 through 33. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all the things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. See, he is under summation, he is quoting or citing the Old Testament message, but he's not giving a, sp- a specific verbatim quote of any one prophet, but he is under summation, he is boiling down the total message of all the prophets. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Okay, He's giving a summation of what the Old Testament record was. But the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. Say, God the Father hides what he wants to hide and he reveals what he wants to reveal when it needs to be revealed. So, no single prophet ever said these things, but all together their message was that he would be despised. And by settling Mary, Joseph, and Jesus in the city of Nazareth, they fulfilled in summation that very expectation. All right. Next week, we will return to uh, our outline and uh, proceed on and gain new ground with the uh, child and his being raised in Nazareth. And the one event that we have of his childhood was that event when he was 12 years old and went to the temple. And we'll tackle that. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.